Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we'll be chatting with one of Southern Nevada's pioneering leaders, Tina Quigley. As always, though, we'll close with some to and fro on some issues of the day between myself and the Indy's managing editor, Elizabeth Thompson. Today, we'll talk about DACA's reprieve, the North Las Vegas implosion at the top, and a state senator's possible big move. Let's get started first, though, with the week's headlines. We started off with an Enterprise piece by Megan Messerly about the lack of a chairman on the Gaming Control Board a month after A.G. Burnett left. That leaves the most important state regulatory body with only two members, creating the possibility of a deadlock on key votes. Two's company, but three's essential on such a board with important votes. Hard not to see, though, why it is difficult for a governor with only a year left to find someone, but... Megan picked up on the possibility that a woman might be in line for the job, which Elizabeth and I will talk about later. Only one female member has ever been on the Gaming Control Board, and there's never been a female chair in the history of the good old boys' state. Riley Snyder had an in-depth look at chaos in North Las Vegas government. Follow this now. The city manager fired the mayor's campaign guy from a high-level government post, but then the firing got put on hold by the mayor, and the manager was forced to resign. Got that? Well, there's more. The manager is totally qualified and well-respected, while the assistant manager and mayor O'Pal is not. And what do the council members, who must be outraged at this abuse of the charter, have to say about it? That sound you hear is of crickets. Much more to come on this, and Elizabeth and I will give you some perspective at the end of the podcast. The team, including Spanish page editor Luz Gray, got reaction from locals after a court held up the president's attempt to end a program preventing undocumented immigrants who came here as children from being deported. As usual, the country's most famous dreamer, Astrid Silva, put it all in perspective, relishing the temporary victory, but pining for a legislative fix so the uncertainty for hundreds of thousands of people is gone. The president once said he would sign a deal on DACA separate from his beloved wall, but now that seems to be old news. You know, about as old as Mexico paying for that wall. We had some other stories on the site, as always, worth checking out, including news on the Senate race and some news on embattled Congressman Ruben Kiewen's ethics probe. And we also unveiled a new feature this week, We're calling it the Indie Blog, where you can find up-to-the-minute developments in politics, government, and campaigns. Check us out at thenevadaindependent.com. We'll be back in a moment on Indie Matters with Tina Quigley. We're back on Indie Matters with our guest, Tina Quigley. Tina Quigley is the general manager of the Regional Transportation Commission of Southern Nevada. She's been with the agency for 12 years, and she's been at the helm since 2012. Tina Quigley, welcome to Indie Matters. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for coming. You sound excited. Also here, I should tell, this is somewhat less excited, Michelle Rendell. She'll be the one (laughs) asking the smart questions. All right, Tina Quigley, let's let's assume, and I know this might be hard for you to believe, that people listening to this podcast have no idea what the Regional Transportation Commission does. Uh, What do you do? Uh, That is, you know... 
what can we blame you for in the way of traffic problems, <laughs> oh and what can't we blame you well, for? Well, I'm going to have to answer it a little bit differently <laughs> okay. than I would have otherwise. No. Right. I, you know what? And I cannot blame anybody for not truly understanding what the RTC is. It's a lot of words, Regional Transportation Commission. And I have to admit, when I first came, considered coming over to the RTC, I was at the airport before that, I actually had to do some research to figure out, what do they do? I didn't want to ask anybody, right? But um, we actually are a very unusual transportation agency in that we are, we're the only agency I know of in the United States that has several different transportation functions all under one umbrella. So we are the public transit agency. We operate the, the public transit, those buses that you see out there and the paratransit buses you see. We are the what's called the MPO, the Metropolitan Planning Organization, which means we're the agency that receives federal funds, local funds for prioritizing and prioritizes those funds to distribute to different infrastructure projects, roadway projects in, um, in Southern Nevada. And we also administer planning related funds for the cities and, and county to do different studies. And then we're the ITS agency, which means the Intelligent Transportation Systems Agency, or um, anything having to do with technology and managing traffic. So whether it be traffic signalizations, uh, the ramp meters, um, traffic cameras, um, those signs that tell you how many more minutes until your next exit, those are all um, administered under the RTC as well. So and how many employees do you have doing all this? So the RTC actually only has about 330 employees, direct employees. Now, we contract out a lot of work. So the, the bus drivers, the operators are not government employees. We partner with private sector. And that really is an efficiency factor for us because those agencies that we contract with have international experience and hundreds of years collective experience in administering these types of contracts. So they can do it much more. They've got you know lear lessons learned, economies of scale. They can do it a lot more uh, efficiently than we would ever be able to do it ourselves. And you have an elected board, right? Mm -hmm. the, 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 and how many members are there? We've got eight members on our board. And by statute, it's uh, two from the county, two from the largest city, which is City of Las Vegas, and then one from each of the other cities. So City of uh, Henderson, City of... Uh, North Las Vegas, City of Mesquite, City of Boulder City. All right. That's a great primer. Now, on to you, Michelle. So, yes. obviously, Vegas is such a car town, and mm -hmm. I... Right. Before coming here, I looked up how long would it take me to take the bus to sure. the podcast. Right. An hour, 19 minutes. and, and Where were you coming from? Southwest That's, Vegas. doesn't matter where you're coming <laughs> from. It's going to be over an hour. Yeah. Yeah. And then 16 minutes to drive the car. So, I mean, do you ever envision yes. we would become kind of post-car? Would we be able to give up our cars right. and, and use this system to commute on a daily basis? Okay. I don't think that we're ever going to totally give up our personal cars. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, transformation in terms of what I'm calling overall mobility. We may not choose to use the car for every single one of our trips. There's also going to be a lot of transformation in the public transit industry, and we're already starting to see it. As the technologies are advancing and getting to the point where we really can very easily, using smartphones, have complex algorithms rhythms um, that can maybe pick up pods of people from certain areas and express them into areas of high employment density. Um, you could start to have a more on-demand type service, much like an, uh, a, an Uber or a Lyft, but in a shared mobility perspective. So I've, I, ideally, I think we start to move away from, especially in the sprawling areas where there's not as much efficiency, start to move away from those transit systems where there's uh, stops every quarter of a mile along a fixed route. And we start to move towards a much more dynamic on-demand um, system that, that that's much more something you and I could use in terms of getting from where we live to where we, we work efficiently and not having to have a car or not even own a car. Um, so like an Uber bus. I do, yeah. And, and you are starting to see 
these public-private partnerships start to evolve between public agencies and Uber and Lyft, specifically right now mostly in the paratransit industry. And in fact, our board has approved us to start a pilot program with Lyft for our paratransit service where it's applicable, where people want to voluntarily get involved. Um, and again, there's going to be some efficiencies by contracting that service out or partnering, um, and it's going to be so much more user-friendly for the people who are using it. So l let me ask you about since you mentioned something, okay. uh, uh, Michelle talked about the, you know getting from one place to another with public transit. Mm -hmm. You have to make all kinds of decisions where 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 the resources should go and where, where they shouldn't go. Mm -hmm. You have all these competing interests, right? You, you might you might have someone from North Las Vegas, someone mm -hmm. from Las Vegas, Clark sure. County, saying they're getting calls from their district. Oh, yeah. the, the traffic is terrible here. Mm -hmm. How do you? That's a different kind of navigation. That's a okay. political navigation. How do you do that? <laughs> so what? Well, I have to clarify between two. So yes, we get calls from constituents or, or elected to have concern for transit riders or paratransit riders. We have a very, and I appreciate our board for respecting this, we have a, a policy that says unless we know there's going to be about 20 passengers per service hour along a route or a, a new route or an extended route, we won't enter into it. And likewise, if we really aren't seeing 20 passengers per service hour on a route, we will consider cutting it back. And those are tough political decisions to make, but I appreciate that we have data that helps guide us and, and kind of move away from, from the politics and, and really start to make wise decisions. That said, sometimes there are constituents that do need special attention and we'll, we'll work to make sure, we want to make sure everybody's got mobility. Are those, are those constituents who need special attention uh, on Las Vegas Boulevard South? Um, <laughs> there are constituents, I'm talking about those who maybe spur, for, throughout the valley who, yeah, I know where you're going. No, no, just no. What's your next question? And you know where I'm going? Where am I going? I mean, you still, there's routes on the Strip, are there not? Yeah, and there will always be routes on the Strip. And here's another thing to know, that the Strip, that route, is the only bus service, bus route in the United States that makes a profit. Is that right? Mm -hmm. The only one, literally. the only bus route right. in the nation that makes a profit. So every year, the FTA, the Federal Transit Administration, ranks... Um, all the different transit agencies in the United States based on their efficiency. And continually, every year, Las Vegas is ranked number one. And the reason, and by a significant amount, like I think it's cost us $2.36 per passenger on average average to move somebody on our system. Um, the second most efficient system, I think right now, is Honolulu, and they do it for $2.44, if I'm right. So that's a pretty big difference, right, when you're multiplying it by millions of passengers per year. And the reason is three, threefold. One, um, the Strip does make money. Right. Two, we don't sprawl the system like we just talked about. Just unless we know we've got 20 passengers per service hour, we won't open up a new route. And then um, we contract out like we just talked about the fact that we've got contractors who can do it way more efficiently than, you know, than I would. Our team, my team would be able to do it. Um, we we benefit from that too. Real quickly before I let Michelle jump back yeah. in here, that reminds me of a question I probably should have asked it at the beginning. What what is your budget? Um, you know, our budget fluctuates based on how much we get in terms of grant money from the feds and how, man, how much we, we sell out in terms of bonds. But this last year, I think it was $836 million. So and, not a billion. And, and not, not quite a not billion. Not a billion. Uh, and how much of that comes locally and how much comes from federal funds percentage-wise? Oh, percentage-wise. And I'd have to look at the latest chart. But the, it, the local number is starting to increase significantly because we tie motor vehicle fuel tax to inflation now. Um, our old pie chart would have told you that uh, federal funds would have been around in the 20% range, but as our local funds grow due to the, the fuel tax uh, fuel, fuel tax indexing, that, that pie, I think, has shrunk down to about 13% of the overall budget. And you got to remember, that's that's um, federal grants for both transit and roads. I don't remember. Did you support the fuel tax indexing? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was thrilled that there were so many people who did. That's what I thought. Go ahead. 
So there's obviously talk of the light rail, mm-hmm. and there was some legislation passed that mm-hmm. kind of paved the way a bit this this session, I believe. Right. Um, what's the future? How how soon do we think that could happen? Does yeah. it depend on the federal government? It does. So the the first yes, it depends on the federal government. We've we've done some um, financial modeling for Maryland Parkway, which we would see as the first. Um, program for or installation of light rail or, or a significant high-capacity transit system. That's what the legislation that we passed really didn't say light rail. We specified it to say high-capacity transit because light rail may or may not be the ultimate technology that, that's picked. Um, but, yes, the modeling we've done would require a 50% match from the federal government. Um, and at this point, we do not know whether or not the this administration is going to support that. I think we've got support from Congress. I'm, I'm hearing Congress being supportive of continuing the transit um, investment programs, but what's called a new starts program. But um, we, still have, we still have to wait and see. But regardless, we are moving ahead with the NEPA, the environmental documents and the design, preliminary design documents for the Maryland Parkway. We also have started a, a conversation about and the, of the feasibility of, um, of along the resort corridor seems like it could totally transform. I mean, what is it, like an eight-mile route? It could mm-hmm. could maybe change the way Maryland Parkway Absolutely. works. Absolutely. If you look works. at the metropolitan areas, the regions where they've invested in high-capacity transit, light rail, or streetcar-type transit, um, in the right corridors, and you have to – location, 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 right? You, you pick the right corridor to put this in, and it really brings – it blossoms that area. And uh, the one that I like to point to is Phoenix. I think that Phoenix invested a billion dollars um, – their voters approved it uh, to invest a billion dollars worth of uh, – into light rail along their corridor, a 20-mile corridor. They expected to see about a 3.9 billion dollar um, – I say return on investment, but really just attracting about $3.9 billion of investment along that corridor from developers. And in less than 10 years, they've seen $8.9 billion um, along that corridor. So because with it, when you when you have an established corridor, especially with a fixed route, it's a, it has this sense of permanence associated with it, that this is where there will be um, attention and, and commitment to developing that, that corridor. And Maryland Parkway, to us, if you ignore the strip, Maryland Parkway really is kind of that north spi- uh, north south spine for Las Vegas. It's got the history. It's got a lot of opportunity for development, um, a lot of opportunity for what we call transit oriented development. Live, work, live, access um, could be a could be a game changer. It could reinvent. A lot of things for us. Could it help with the parking situation at UNLV? <laughs> and and they, yes, actually, UNLV is a supporter. In fact, all the businesses along Maryland Parkway are supporters of that of that endeavor for multiple of reasons. But parking is one of them. Did you have the power to mandate uh, uh, spaces for the Indie Matters podcast at UNLV? Because we would really, we would really, really appreciate that. It depends that. on what your additional questions <laughs> that's, are. That, that, that's, see, that, that's, uh, she's a veteran. So let's, uh, to piggyback on, on, on this discussion, some other things we've talked about, I know you're very interested in the whole concept of infrastructure it, and you talk about it a lot. There's a lot of talk in Washington now, and I know you go back there once in a while, about Maybe there's going to be some big infrastructure bill. Mm-hmm. If you if you had your wish list, what what do we need most in, in Southern Nevada in terms of infrastructure that we don't have? Well, we're very lucky. Again, the fact that we passed the the concept of tying motor vehicle fuel tax to inflation doesn't leave us at the whim and 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 begging you know the the federal government for um, infrastructure in our most uh, investments in our most important. Projects. We're very lucky that like that. I, I'm going to go back to the transit investments. That I think that those 
for us right now are going to be very important. There's, I, I tell people, and, and, and really starting to focus on innovation and technology investments and, and considering those infrastructure investments. Um, I tell people a couple things. One, I think that um, there are certain corridors where you just can't give, you can't put any more asphalt or any more green time. You just, you can't physically do it, right? You're, you're, geo, you're geographically constrained. There's just only so much that you can do in terms of throughput. So the only thing that you can do at that point is get, make that as, those assets, the asphalt and the, the green time or the traffic lights more efficient. Um, I say technology is, is the new asphalt. Technology is the new way of getting more out of what, what you've got. And an example is I, I think that if you were to take, you know, say $10 million and invest it in a corridor um, like Las Vegas, it's really a partnership between the automakers and, and, and the infrastructure developers, but really start to invest it in making sure cars and infrastructure can talk to each other and communicate and car to car, other cars can communicate to each other you can then really start to pump out safely a lot more efficiency through those corridors. Does that make sense? Yes. So this kind of pie-in-the-sky idea has come up, and, and it's from a government I love candidate. So, <laughs> um, you know, what about the idea of closing down the strip sure. um, to traffic? I, it's just become a nightmare. I right. was going there this weekend, and, you know, it just scares me it, to have to find parking. But, um, I, I mean, is that... Is that crazy? Would that be problematic That's for a, any reason? Um, you know, I hear that more and more. I hear uh, I hear more than ever people ask that question. A couple of things to think about, and that won't be the RTC's decision to make. That would be a county and a resort corridor um, decision to make. A couple of things. One, you know, that really wasn't designed with walkability in mind. Uh, a lot of the, the, the centers of the resort properties themselves are a considerable distance from from the sidewalks. The sidewalks are not always wide enough. Um, but And then also just the distance between the properties is pretty significant. Um, you know, we, it looks, because they're so big, it's kind of deceitful and you think, I'll just walk from the MGM, you know, over to, to the wind because I can see it. That's a pretty, that's a hefty walk. Um, so there'd have to be a lot of urban design changes associated with that as well. But who, who's to say that they couldn't make those those uh, architectural design changes to shift the way you you move up and down the strip. I don't know. And as we get these new arenas, I mean, not just the T-Mobile, but there's other ones coming online. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it oh, is... there are what other ones? <laughs> well, the Sands has a oh, project okay. in the works. All that. Yeah. Um, Wait a second. Do you know of other ones that we don't know about? You should tell us. Okay. No, I don't know, John. You're, you guys know it all. <laughs> all <right. laughs> um, I mean, you're where I get my information. Okay. How has Uber um, changed things for us, especially mm-hmm. as as it relates to traffic and getting to the strip and arenas? Sure. Well, um, first of all, I think it's a great it's a great resource, right, for all of us who want to be able to now get to these as locals as we want to get to these venues and not have to park. How awesome is it now we can just request somebody come pick us up? Do you remember the days, it wasn't that long ago, where you could call every, sorry taxi companies, but you could call every taxi company in town and, and say, could you please pick, come pick me up at my residence? And they'd be like, no, we wouldn't be, we're not going to be able to do that. Or they'd tell you, yeah, we'll be there. And then, you know, it just never really came to fruition. So really great that we as, as residents and our visitors have a new resource, a new tool in our tool belt for getting for where we are to where we need to go. Um, pressure will be on those of us who are responsible for urban design, for traffic planning, and for transit um, to be ready to shift our models as well. And I will be candid with you and letting you know that, that Uber 
and Lyft, and, and I do think they're an important asset to mobility in Southern Nevada, but they have their impact on our transit ridership um, has been significant. We've seen at least, I think it's about 13, 14% decrease in the number of riders. Um, so that's, that's something uh, I was wondering about that. that yeah. I, I really wasn't. So that's yeah. a big hit. It is a big hit. And it is, it is something that we have to be prepared to adjust to. I, it's not bad, right? Things change. And you are responsible for being aware of the change and figuring out what new model is appropriate. So we're paying attention to it. And we will make the shifts as we have to make. You think it's going to get bigger than that at some point? I mean, do you think it's just going to continue to increase? I think it's tough for it to not. Yeah, yeah. I do. Especially as they start to introduce probably like Uber Pool or Lyft Line, where you have the ability to share a ride with people who are going to similar destinations and it significantly drops your fare. That's pretty tempting now because a, a bus ride is $2 each way. But if I can, um, or it's $65 for a monthly pass, if I can get those same trips at a lower rate, that, by just by sharing with somebody, why would I not do that? And I think that's very, and I think that's right. It's getting people from where they are to where they need to go as efficiently and safely as possible is overall the goal. But it costs you money. It costs the RTC money, right? Yeah, absolutely. We it does it dip into our revenues, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we continue to try and do what we've always done in terms of the way we operate our system. It means we have to adjust. It's we have to adjust. Onus is on us and. And we'll do it. Uh, I know. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but Michelle is the official indie bus reporter. But, okay. <laughs> and I know she has bus questions, but Good. I just, I just want to, I just want to ask before she gets into some questions about buses. Do you ever ride your buses? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we require our management team on a monthly basis to go out and ride in some some way, um, a route. Uh, I do. I have ridden from where I live. I way, live way over in, in the Anthem area, so I have to. I park my car at a certain lot, and then I'll take it. And it, um, it takes me two hours to get to work. I have to have one transfer, um, and it is sobering. Um, it's humbling. You know, you have to eat your own dog food, so, so to speak. You have to be aware of of, of what's going on. And what and and and. But look you, how you're describing that, though. I mean. Why does it have to be described that way? Why does it have to be? That because way? it's not efficient. That's why. Because it's not efficient. It is not efficient for to have to spend two hours of your life getting from where you live to where you work. That's not efficient. And uh, I'll tell you what is nice though is that you can be on there and um, you can get all your emails and all of your, uh, you know, you can get a lot. You can use that as product as productivity time, and you can get a lot done. So if we could, if we had a system that was for those who are way out in the sprawling areas and needing to get into the, the, the center core area, that was a little more efficient. Um, that is something that I, probably people like me would consider taking more often because we, again, have the ability to use that time as productivity time. Well, I think uh, the boss stole my bus questions already. But. I did? I didn't. I just asked. I just wanted to know if she rode the bus. I'm that sorry. Oh, oh, my gosh. I'm a bus, pilf, bus question pilferer. Um, but I wanted to ask you, we've got uh, CES in town. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of the talk is about autonomous mm -hmm. systems and yeah. all that. I mean, are you guys planning with that in mind? Mm -hmm. And how does that yeah. change things for you and, and for the outlook? There's going to be so much change. And I would say that within, I, I don't, I think we've probably got at least three years left before we start to see major deployment of autonomous type vehicles. Um in in our in our portfolio of, of mobility um baby steps are underway in fact you know we have an autonomous shuttle operating right now in the downtown area and it's free it'll be operating there for about a year and the purpose is just to put for the first time ever this was the first time we put ever in the united states a uh, a, a public 
shuttle um, on in a public environment operating in real time with real people, real traffic incidents. And the purpose is to collect data to see what is it. You can only operate it for so long in these microcosms or these protected um protected what I want to say uh, racetracks and stuff you it's time to get them out in the real world so we're operating for a year and then the other reason is to just get people aware of the fact that this technology is coming but it isn't there yet I think a lot of people think oh my gosh next year we're going to have dry you know cars with no steering wheels in them oh no 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 we're still a ways away from that I think it's about three years before we start to see even just certain corridors be able to operate fully autonomously because the infrastructure needs to again be prepared to communicate with the cars and give information to the cars. Cars need to be able to talk to cars. We're still a little ways away. Um, but, yes, the RTC is preparing for that. In fact, we've got a couple studies underway. We have an emerging technologies study underway to figure out what do we need to do in order to be prepared for whatever it is. It's And who knows what it's going to be, right? Just in three years, we've gone from not even knowing what the word Uber meant to all of a sudden it, we've got it on, you know, as an application and they've got our credit card information. We use it all the time. What do you think the next three to five years? We have no idea what it's going to be. The best thing that we can do is just be getting as educated as we can, staying apprised of what's going on, um, and really developing more partnerships with private sector because it's not going to be the RTC on its own, we have a stellar team, but we're not going to be developing these apps and these technologies on our own. It's up to us to go out and find out what's going on in the industry and partner and do pilot programs with um, with private sector so that we can start to bring about these changes and these efficiencies and, and these really great services to, to the constituents of Southern Nevada. Um, am I talking too much? Okay, good. I'm about the usual. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Michelle. Um, and I, I know one of the other things that RTC deals with is traffic safety. So, okay. um, you know, NDOT put out a press release the other day that traffic fatalities are down, you know, 5%. Um, and You're right. I, and I, I saw that one, and I need to do a little bit of research on that. So um, I'm, I'm glad to read that locally we're having some success. I know I had just last month, or the right month before, had read a national statistic that said we were set to end the year 2017 up 30% in terms of fatalities. And that was due to, I mean, it's due to distracted driving. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I'm glad to hear that Nevada's, we had a reduction, but I'm wondering how that, that correlates to, to those national numbers. Not totally how do sure. we tackle distracted driving? It just seems the hardest of the problems at the moment. Right. I think that, you know, Ultimately, moving towards autonomous, t I don't, I don't know how you really tackle that in the short term. It's something that we will do the best that we can, but ultimately, the answer is going to be really relying less on the human to safely navigate these, basically these speeding bullets that are going, you know, sixty miles an hour and have the ability to to kill. Um, we really need to slowly but surely turn it over to computers. Are probably going to be able to do it a lot safer than we're able to do it. I know there was a RAND Foundation study that said even if all we could do is get 10% of our, our fleet out there, um, either autonomous or very, very connected, meaning that it's connected to traffic lights and in the infrastructure of the cars, um, we would immediately see a reduction of thousands in terms of fatality. And the point of the study being, let's go ahead and accelerate this, the implementation, the deployment of autonomous vehicles as soon as possible, as opposed to taking, being really cautious and taking baby steps, go ahead and start to get this technology out there because even a small bite or a small deployment of this technology will have a very big impact on fatalities and ultimately, you know, cost to taxpayers. You know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned this and, and you have something on your website about 
this uh, connected and autonomous vehicles or CAVs. Mm -hmm. And what it says is these vehicles will be able to com communicate with the RTC's integrated traffic signal system, mm -hmm. help transform Southern Nevada's urban landscape by creating a more connected network for motorist transit riders and freight operators. Mm -hmm. what, what, I have to tell you, mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a technology guy. I'm a gadget mm -hmm. freak. I love the latest technology. Mm -hmm. These driverless cars scare me totally yeah. irrationally. John my, my brother's <clears throat> a tech guy and he thinks I'm crazy. He says, same thing you do in a few years, right. we're all going to be in driverless cars. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll be I'll be like my, with my eyes closed. So, okay, two thoughts. One, I'm going to encourage you to go have you go downtown and just just get in that autonomous vehicle. It, you know, it feels like an amusement park ride. It doesn't feel it feels like you're at Disneyland. It goes very slow. It's very cautious, but um, do that just as a psychological baby step. Then um, another thing. I feel thing, like I'm in therapy here now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's, it, it's going to help you. I'm I'm here to help. Okay. Um, also just rode in a um, so a company called Aptiv, which used to be Delphi, has partnered with Lyft here at CES, and they are, are offering autonomous vehicle taxis. You know, you summon a Lyft and you have the option to... I saw those. Choose. A friend of mine was in town who, who covers the car industry, and mm -hmm. I dropped him off there after he after did. we had lunch. And yeah, he was. I saw those cars there. Yeah, there's something so else. What was neat, what I liked about it is that, um, well, I, I felt so they still have a driver who's sitting there because it still has a steering wheel. Mm -hmm. Legally, we have to have a driver there. But it is talking to our traffic lights, and, and, and it's got video cameras, it's got LiDAR, it's got radar, it's got everything to sense what's going on but surprisingly it was this little voice that could little this soothing voice that comes on that gave me the comfort so the voice will say changing preparing to change lanes and then she changes lanes or it changes lanes preparing to turn left turning left and I know that sounds really silly but from a human psychology perspective that put me at ease and I'm going to draw an analogy here so the elevator industry back in the was invented in the 1800s, and at the time you had to have an elevator operator because he actually physically um, leveled the elevator so it would be level with the floor, and then he, and then you got off. It was in the early 1900s that electricity entered that industry, and now you could have Otis was the original elevator manufacturer. You could press the button, and but get guess what? People would not get into an elevator without an elevator operator. So they had to keep elevator operators on board. Now, it wasn't until 1940, so at least 30 years later, that the elevator operators decided to go on strike. Okay, bad decision making, right? Because now all of a sudden, Otis is like, oh, crappity crap crap, we gotta figure out how we, are, we just get rid of these guys altogether. So they did a couple things. They put the uh, phone on, you know, where you can pick up, it, it didn't necessarily connect anything, but they put them on. They did the red button, emergency stop, which did in fact work. But the other thing they did was the soothing voice. They put the soothing voice on that said, next floor, you know, shoes, men's suits. And that is actually how people got to be comfortable getting onto elevators. Wow, a history lesson of elevators. Do you uh, like as that well. as an analogy to autonomous do, do you think, by the way, that I could, I have the kind of voice that I could uh, audition for the no. soothing voice? No, yeah. all in favor of that say aye. <laughs> oh, wait, look, there's nobody saying aye. For those of you who are listening, nobody's raising their hand. Um, I think that's probably all, all right. So let's let's just wrap up the discussion, uh, then. No, uh, Tina, no, no, going. no. We, we would keep going, but you talk too much. So let's, <laughs> let's 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 talk about something that I know you're really interested in. I'm fascinated by. I don't know much about it, and this is this whole concept of smart cities yeah. uh, that, that I know you're yeah. involved in, mm -hmm. and I know it's going to start probably bubbling up mm -hmm. uh, here. To, to talk sure. about what's going on. Okay, so the term smart city, I mean, there's no real definition for it, but basically it's the concept of, of starting to really use Internet of Things and data collection and data analytics to start operating your city in a smarter way, a more efficient way. It's um, very easy explanations are things like, um, well, 
garbage, you know, so having garbage cans that have the ability to tell you uh, when they're getting full or even when they're getting stinky and then alerting those who are responsible for the removal of that garbage, um, you know, in real time when it's time to replace the garbage as opposed to letting it spill all over or um, having routine maintenance, even though it doesn't even need to be maintained. So that you get some efficiencies out of that or using streetlights to capture data way beyond just traffic, but also pedestrian activity, near miss activity, um, just using them to capture data and then using that data for smarter, well, for, for smarter urban infrastructure decisions. I had, there's a great story about in a city in Tennessee used, put sensors on asthma inhalers so that they could detect how often and where these asthma inhalers were being used. And what they learned was there were certain, um, there were certain neighborhoods that during certain times of the day, they were seeing a lot more activity. Well, it turned out that that's because they had a congestion problem and a traffic signalization problem um, uh, behind those neighborhoods. And so they we were able to fix it with uh, traffic signals, fix it with, through their traffic signalization. They also planted a wall of cypress trees or trees to kind of cons, uh, uh, um, consume some of the, the air pollution that was what's in the area. So those types of things. Um, each city, well, in Las Vegas, so city of Las Vegas, city of Henderson, Clark County, city of North Las Vegas, they'll all kind of start to do those types of smart city initiatives. What I'm really passionate about is pulling together all of the cities in the county and the RTC and the health district and the water district um, to have one conversation to um, as to how we're going to be a smart community as opposed to a series of smart cities. Um, and that that that's where it gets a little bit harder. And to my knowledge, nobody else in the United States is doing that yet. It's real. It's easy to be a smart city, right? You have one mayor, you have one city council, you have one city manager, and the mayor or the city manager says, we're going to be a smart city and we're going to focus on health issues or traffic issues. It's a lot harder when you've got six different entities and utilities that you're working with, then you're going to come up with common data governance, common data platforms, um, data analytics, and then how you're going to share that data. Because of my, my the RTC's traffic data is going to be of interest to Metro or fire or uh, health department or social services. And likewise, their data in some areas is going to be important to us. So that's what we're, that's what we're working on right now. Is there a venue? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. are people getting together to talk about this? Is it going to be a public discussion? Yeah. It would seem, and not only uh, revolutionary and visionary in a way, but essential for the future of a community like this, where you have these different jurisdictions and government bodies, right? Right. Yeah. And the economies of scale that you can get, and right. when you can leverage each other, you're a pretty weighty body, right, if you've got all these together. So we've just kind of started meeting organically. Um, we have 16 different agencies. UNLV is one of the partners, that, and we, we're not formed yet. In fact, we have a meeting. We've been meeting quarterly. We have, we have a meeting at the end of this month. Um, Are these secret meetings that the press can't come to? Because, you know, we're, we're an entity, too, that probably should be included in this. You, don't you think? You know, I'll make sure you get an invite. No. Okay. okay. We're, we're going to hold you to that. Oh, great. Okay. Um, but so right now, just just trying to figure out what we recognize the value in this. And we recognize if ever there was a region that could do this, it's us because, um, we're, I mean, there really only are two two regions in Nevada, right? There's Southern Nevada and there's there's Reno, Northern Nevada. Um, you don't like the rurals? Well, oh gosh, why you gotta do that? Why you gotta spin there that? There goes like Tina that? Quigley's yeah. statewide yeah. campaign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, the rurals are certainly part. Of there. There's a lot of benefits that the rurals will have out of these exact same smart cities, smart communities conversations because we'll be able to share. A You're lot saying of there's only two urban areas. Is what there you are two meant. urban areas. Yeah. So if we can each collectively get together 
and form these smart communities, it's going to make us very powerful. And actually, I should point out the UNR does participate in our conversations as well because they've got they've got some knowledge that they can add to it. Um, so meeting organically, I do think that we will morph into something that is uh, more formal and sustainable. Um, we're, in fact, at our next meeting, we'll introduce an, an interlocal agreement, a memorandum of understanding, an agreement between each of the 16 agencies and see what they think about kind of formalizing it. That's, that'll, that'll really be something to watch. I know, thanks for breaking yeah. that news here. Uh, Michelle, thanks for coming and asking questions. I, I feel very guilty about stealing a bus question from you. <laughs> I thought it was leading into you able to yeah, ask bus questions. A lot um, more bus questions asked offline. Okay, you can, yeah, you can ask many more <laughs> bus, bus questions. Tina Quigley, uh, uh, it's been a pleasure. I'm sorry that we uh, destroyed your hopes of a statewide campaign. You can, you can say, I, I can no, say. I'll I, support I, your campaign. No, there you go. <laughs> Tina Quigley loves Elko and Ely. You Oh, that's funny. Gabs I actually do. Okay. Yeah, Ely's one of my favorite places to go. It's got a cute little bar and restaurant. There, there you go. All right, Tina Quigley. This has been a, re a really enlightening uh, conversation. Thanks for coming on the oh, podcast. I love it. Invite me back, you guys. I'm really proud of what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks. Welcome back to the Indie Matters podcast. It's the podcast of the Nevada Independent. I'm the editor. John Ralston. I'm now joined by the person who really runs the Nevada Independent, my number two, Elizabeth Thompson, the managing editor. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, John. So we're going to talk about uh, uh, some issues of the moment, uh, as we always do. The first one, let's start. And we had a story on this, as I mentioned earlier, about the DACA, uh, the end of DACA, getting a reprieve in in the courts and, and the fact that this is still being debated and they're trying to come to some kind of bipartisan agreement in Congress. I should always remind people that we are recording this on Thursday afternoon, so it could have been reached by the time uh, you hear uh, this this podcast. And I thought the most interesting thing that, that, I, that was in our story, uh, Elizabeth, I don't know what, what you thought was, was, was Astrid Silva's kind of like, I want to celebrate this, but we're never going to feel comfortable because they have this sort of Damocles over their head all the time until there is this legislative fix, which they apparently, as we're recording this, don't have an agreement on. No, the Atlantic uh, reported just a couple hours ago that there's six senators, three Republicans, three Democrats who have come to a tentative agreement on a path to citizenship. So this would be a kind of a renewal of uh, the DREAM Act, uh, along with some other things that need to be uh, fixed. But that doesn't mean they have Trump administration sign off, and it doesn't mean the Senate as a whole is going to pass it. But they're working towards something. And Trump clearly signaled this week by having a open meeting to which the press was invited, that he was willing to talk, willing to deal, willing to negotiate. Uh, so I think there's hope, as Astrid indicated, that something uh, may happen, may come of this. But as long as we've got presidents of different ideologies coming and going and managing immigration issues by executive order, we're going to continue to have a problem and people are going to continue, of course, to be nervous because there's so much uncertainty. Well, that's, that's a great point because there was a lot of controversy about uh, uh, President Obama's executive order, if people remember, saying that was that was a misuse of the presidency and, 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 and candidate Trump was very critical uh, of that. Uh, that. That uh, hour-long open meeting for the press to watch with the congressional leaders, I think, was widely seen as, you know, it, it, it was amazing to me. It got such great coverage. Oh, look, the president actually can talk for an hour. Uh, maybe he is a stable genius after all. But in, in all seriousness, the thing that you mentioned, I think, is is, is one of the keys to this, that uh, this so-called gang of six, uh, uh, not to be confused with the gang of eight, wants a path to citizenship. 
that that is like the third rail for for Trump's core supporters. So how does the president ever support something like that? Yeah, it puts him in a difficult position for sure, although he still has some aces in the the hole. He wants to end the so-called diversity lottery which is you know this lottery that's held in various countries across the world where certain numbers thousands or tens of thousands of people from certain countries or continents uh, get to come here on work visas it's something that people all over the world look forward to i recently was in a taxi cab with a driver from ethiopia who got to the united states on one of these diversity lottery tickets it was kind of a fascinating story and then chain migration is another issue that trump is standing strong on he said in that meeting yesterday chain migration for the uh, listeners uh, edification if you don't know means that once one person in a family comes to the us and gets established uh, legally with a work visa then uh, they then of course not only send money back home but often try to bring those family members uh, to the U.S. with them. So, I'm, you know, if Trump stays strong on those issues for his base, it's possible that the, a path to citizenship, a renewal of the DREAM Act, or some other version of the DREAM Act uh, could happen because when you talk to people on both sides of the aisle, regardless of whether they're an R or a D, and, and you phrase it succinctly to say, look, minor children that were brought here through no fault of their own who have been living here for 10 years or more should be offered a path to citizenship. There aren't too many people who disagree with that Pol- statement. Polling, polling is high in, across Democrat, demographic party boundaries on that. You're right. But Trump at one time, remember, it was just a few months ago, I don't remember exactly when, when, when Pelosi and Schumer went over to meet with the White House uh, about this issue uh, of immigration. They, meet, they came out and said, great news, uh, the president isn't going to tie a solution to this to his border wall. He said it's separate. And now in that meeting and in subsequent interviews, he said, oh, no, we're not doing this without a border wall. So to expect any kind of constancy uh, from him uh, on this issue, and there's so many moving parts, and you named uh, several of them. You know, a lot of people hate chain migration. They, they, want, they want to get rid of that. And so how do you build a coalition to actually get this through Congress? I think that's what worries people like Astrid Silva. Well, absolutely, and, and rightly so, because how long have we been talking about this issue in this country? I mean, you know, I was a Reagan-era kid, and we were— fighting back then over whether we were talking about a path to citizenship or amnesty, and we're still having the same fight in this country. So in my opinion, Congress should try to act in a kind of once and for all way, at least on this image of what do we do with the minor children who were brought to this country by their parents when they were uh, minors. We should at least get that piece uh, done. But you know, me thinking that and it actually happening, especially by this arbitrary deadline that we've apparently put on it, which is at the same time we're trying to pass a new federal budget by January 19th, who knows? Uh, well, I do want to move on to the next subject, but I do want to first ask you, since you brought it up, you said you were a Reagan-era kid. You were you were like six years old thinking about immigration. Is is that correct? Sure, we'll go with that. Okay, let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk about another story I mentioned uh, earlier, which is North Las Vegas and the craziness uh, that, that that is going on there. And 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 you and I have both been in Nevada for a while. We've seen crazy stuff with local governments, but this with the, this uh, pal of John Lee's, the mayor, who is. Uh, 
uh, he brought into the to the government uh, and made him an assistant. First, he was his chief of staff. Then he became an assistant city manager. And then suddenly, the, the very professional uh, city manager decides to, Lane, she's had enough of this guy, wants to fire him. And John Lee not only saves him, but essentially forces uh, her uh, to resign. And we got this, we got a hold of this memo uh, that is absolutely astonishing that she wrote about Ryan Juden is, is, is the man's name. Uh, what was your first reaction when you saw that story? I was a bit astonished, not so much that it was going on, because we've known, I think, for some time, those of us who have followed the uh, the trials and tribulations of one Ryan Juden and one uh, Mayor Lee, uh, that you know, they're, you know, they're pales from way back. And when you've got people who used to work for your campaign who then become a chief of staff and then they're a city manager and per- they may not be exactly qualified to be a city manager just because they were palsy with you during your campaign. I mean, th- so those of us who have been following uh, politics and government in North Las Vegas, I don't think are terribly surprised that something like this could happen. What's so astounding, uh, because we were able to get a hold of that memo, uh, and because we were also able to get a hold of an employment review that has been quietly distributed uh, in order to show another side of the story is that we what we've got here is a political power play uh, going on that really has very little to do with the actual management of city uh, government. Ryan Juden apparently walked into the city manager's office and let her know that she was on the way out. She didn't like that too much, and she found reason to try to get rid of him. So she fired him, and then Mayor Lee unfired him, or I think the word he gave to the Review Journal was reversed uh, the decision and said the city manager had no uh, right to do that. And there may well have been some violations of the city charter here that are serious. People don't know about that because, you know, you and I live with this stuff. There there are two kinds of local governments. One is a strong manager and the other is a strong mayor, uh, where the mayor has veto power in the latter one and in many cases. A strong manager form of government means the elected officials stay out of all personnel decisions. The assistant county city city manager works for the manager. The manager uh, fired him because she has the right to fire him. And then this was undone. And what's uh, what's amazing to me here, uh, Elizabeth, and I've seen some dysfunctional bodies as of you, but no one on the council is saying anything. It's it's like they're it's like they're rendered mute. Uh, in all of this, the, the city manager, uh, uh, Chong Lee, I think is how you pronounce her name, uh, has signed a separation agreement, I believe, the, 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 and she's not going to talk about this. My sources say that Lee put this whole thing in motion late last year uh, and, and to elevate Juden probably to, to the city manager's job. Uh, and Lee, and against all this backdrop, is talking about running for Congress. Yes, uh, and we'll see how that goes, won't we? Because with all these emails flying back and forth, I would imagine that one or more uh, press organizations in this region will be making some Freedom of Information Act Why are we giving the other press organizations ideas, Elizabeth? (laughs) I'm pretty sure they've already been all filed (laughs) as soon as this happened. I don't don't think we're giving away any trade secrets here. So I think more is going to come to light about how this went down, who said what to who, where did this really start, how was it handled? It appears to me that it was handled extremely unprofessionally at a number of turns, which to me is disturbing because... Okay, it's a government body. It serves the taxpayer, uh, and, and a city should be run really like any other above-the-board ethical business, where the city manager, as you point out, is essentially the CEO uh, with the power to make personnel decisions, especially if if she or he has reason uh, to do so. But of course, whenever politics 
uh, and personalities are involved, uh, things don't always go as planned. There, there could be lawsuits, even though uh, the city manager has signed the separation agreement. That doesn't she probably didn't give up her right to come back uh, with a lawsuit at some point. Maybe she did. I don't know. Hopefully, it's we'll get a hold possible. of that document as well. Well, that document has to be a public document as well, a separation agreement. Uh, so should I just wrap up this discussion of this. I want people to know that John Lee publicly said that she, that the city manager thought she was erroneously, apparently in his mind, in a quote leadership position. If the city manager is not in a leadership position, who, who is, is in a leadership position? Finally, another great only in Nevada kind of story going on. Uh, Elizabeth and our Megan Messerly first wrote about uh, this uh, vacancy I mentioned on the gaming control board. The chairman left. Uh, there, there's It's a three-member board. You cannot have a two-member board voting on things because if they disagree, then there's a deadlock, and that's why there's an odd number. Uh, these are very, very important matters. Uh, it's been vacant for a month. We know that the governor is... It's difficult for a governor who's a lame deck governor with only one year left to appoint somebody. But who would want to take a job where you have possible expiration date at the end of the year? And uh, we have since learned that he may want to appoint only the second woman in the history of Nevada, if that's not so Nevada, to the Game and Control Board and to make the first female chairwoman. And uh, we now know that Becky Harris, who is a state senator, Republican state senator who, who just got her gaming certificate, she's very proud of this, uh, could become the first female chairman. Yet uh, uh, there are people who don't want her to do this. Who are these people, Elizabeth? Oh, well, I mean, one Michael Roberson for starters, but not not just Roberson. I mean, the Republicans in the Senate do not want her to do it because she's a Republican in the Senate. She's con- she's well liked. They're they probably are not sure they can hold her seat. Uh, and they're probably quite worried that they may not be able to hold her seat if she does not run again. In other words, if she were to accept uh, this appointment from the, the governor, it would be uh, even more difficult for them to hold that seat. So I'm sure there's considerable uh, pressure on her for those reasons to stick with the team and do what we need to so that we don't lose any seats in the in the Senate. And of course, we've been following the the recalls and know that the Republicans were not only trying not to lose seats, but trying to gain seats any which way they could because they're there's a chance. I mean, who knows what's going to happen, but there's so many things in flux. We've got two primary fights on the, in the governor's race. We don't know whether we're going to have a Republican or a Democrat for uh, a governor. And so the Republicans definitely want to make sure if they can that they uh, that they control or at least even Stephen in the uh, the state Senate. On the other hand, you know, Becky Harris is, as I said, well-liked, smart woman, got the right credentials, definitely qualified. This would be a historic uh, appointment because she would, as you pointed out, be the only the second female to ever hold that uh, post. So she's got, uh, it's a tough decision for her to make. I wouldn't think it's a tough decision at all. This is a chance of a lifetime for, for, for her. Uh, you get a chance of a lifetime to become the first female chairwoman of the most important board in Nevada, in, in Nevada, important regulatory board. You're, 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 I mean, it, it's not like people, you, you give up your political career, you can go places from, from but gaming But you know regulation. how political royalties, uh, loyal, not royalties, excuse me, loyalties mm-hmm. work. I mean, she was recruited you know, by the powers that be in the Republican 
uh, cabal. They helped her. They groomed her. They trained her. They funded her. They helped get her elected. Uh, and th- so there's a line of thinking that they're owed some allegiance and loyalty. And most candidates who were helped along the way do feel some loyalty to those uh, who helped them. So it's easy for us to say, oh, this is a no-brainer. This would be a great job for her. Low risk. She should take it. But, you know, when, when emotions and personal relationships come into play, these things get complicated. Certainly, uh, you laid out the political dra- backdrop of this uh, in, 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 in very compelling fashion. You mentioned the recalls. This is a huge this, this scheme that Michael Roberson, who... We should probably tell people, in case you don't know, as a state Senate uh, a Republican leader right now is going to be running for lieutenant governor. Uh, he orchestrated these recalls uh, because the Republicans can't take the state Senate uh, uh, unless they oust a couple of these because there are no endangered uh, Democratic incumbents. Becky Harris is an endangered Republican incumbent. They could well lose that seat even if she runs uh, again. Uh, and they're, they're very worried, and Roberson, I know for a fact, is very worried that if she decides to take this, they have to get somebody else in there, uh, and, and it's going to be at a disadvantage in many different ways. Uh, and so he, and I'm sure, is hectoring her and others not to let this happen. I doubt he talks to the governor because I don't think the governor is too happy with these recalls, as 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 we know. But uh, the reason I don't think it's as tough, I understand what you're saying about loyalties, and I think loyalties are very important to some people in politics and easily forgotten uh, by others. The question is, what is Becky Harris? Oh, Michael Roberson. Uh, I mean, he was he was he did recruit her. Uh, and and he did get her help to get her elected. He raised money for her, etc. But uh, if Michael Roberson really cared about Becky Harris uh, as a human being and her career, he would be encouraging her to take this, wouldn't he? Well, perhaps. But the, there's another side to this uh, as well, which is that she has so far proven herself to be a pretty capable lawmaker. She understands policy. She's a quick study. Uh, She was involved in uh, drafting and pushing through some uh, important legislation uh, last session. And so I think not just Michael Roberson, but any Republican uh, in the state who's trying to accomplish the Republican agenda wants as many competent lawmakers in Carson City as possible. She definitely uh, fits that bill. Uh, And she probably, as far as I know, she enjoyed that job, likes being a lawmaker. And so she may be on the fence just because... She may be wondering, you know, how much fun am I going to have really as the gaming control board chair? How much am I really going to get out of it? How useful is that really versus what can I accomplish as a lawmaker in Carson City in a small state? That could be part of her calculus as well. You know, bottom line is, again, we're, we're, we're recording this on Thursday. Uh, uh, she may have been appointed or, or, yes, uh, or by not. now. Well, she, <laughs> uh, of, of course, the way these things work, in case people don't understand, Sandoval's not going to offer her the job unless he knows she's going to say yes because he doesn't want the story out there that he right. offered. And so, so I just want to remind people that this could have happened by the time uh, uh, that they sure. hear this podcast. Yes, but we, we've given the political context. We have. And there may be other names uh, in the hat that uh, come to light in the next couple days. And uh, if there are, the Nevada Independent will be sure to report them. You should check our website daily and often, as always. Thanks for that. You saved me some time at the end. Elizabeth, always fun uh, uh, sparring back and forth with you. Thanks for coming on. Sure. And that is all the time that we have for this edition of the Indie Matters Podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at com. And as Elizabeth said, check out our site if you really want to be on uh, in the know, the Nevada Independent. Dot com. And don't forget our new blog on that site, the Indie Blog. Go on there and 
and check it out. We have already have three stories uh, on there as of Thursday that you will be interested in. Please uh, uh, rate Indie Matters on uh, iTunes. Subscribe, too. You can also find us on Google Play, and we're going to be on every platform imaginable at some point. I want to thank again Tina Quigley uh, for coming on. That was a great interview. I really enjoyed it. And I also want to thank, as always, our wonderful hosts here at KUNV and the campus of UNLV. And as always, many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer. You know, maybe maybe Joey Lovato could, could gauge those soothing voices uh, for, for, for the cars because we always want everyone to sound podcast smooth Elizabeth could definitely be the voice in the car there's no question she has a podcast smooth uh, voice I'm John Ralston thanks for listening to Indie Matters and we'll talk to you next week